Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. My name is Jason. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we'll be talking about the 2014 movie Pride, based on the true story we recounted in last week's episode about the lesbians and gays support the miners' activist campaign during the British miners' strike of 1984. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. So we shouted this out last week, we're going to shout it out again. Um, We had a request from one of our listeners, Max, who asked us to shout out his local queer bookshop. Uh, So this is just a shout out to Proud Geek, an online LGBT plus bookshop based in the UK, shipping to the UK, Europe, and excitingly for us, Australia, whose website allows you to filter by media, queer representation, and genre and who deliver all their orders in secure, discreet packaging to make sure those not out at home are safe. Uh, You can find out more on their About Us page on their website, which we'll link in the episode description. We also have some content warnings for this episode. This episode contains mentions of HIV and the AIDS epidemic, as well as prejudice towards people with HIV, discussion of historical homophobia, including homophobic violence, and the use of a slur in quotes. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, please check out one of our other episodes. So we spoke last week about the historical context for this episode. Pride, the movie, was made in 2014, written by Stephen Beresford and directed by Matthew Walkus, Varkus, I don't really know how you say his name. Beresford, who also wrote the 2019 film Tolkien, had known about the story for 20 years, according to an interview he did with The Guardian. He said, the story had become a legend in the gay community, but it was like Chinese whispers. I wasn't sure whether to believe it. I did think, if it was true, I'll write about it one day. Beresford is, as that quote implies, gay, and was in a relationship with one of the actors in the film, Sherlock and Fleabag's Andrew Scott, until the last couple of years. Oh, okay. Which immediately endeared me to him, in terms of him writing this movie. Yeah. It was definitely a thing where I saw Andrew Scott in that movie, and I was like, it's that guy! (laughs) It's the guy from Sherlock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Sometimes you get that thing where you see actors that are so recognisable as themselves that they kind of pull you out of the movie for a second. And, like, I don't think, at least in my perspective, I don't know what you think, I don't think this is a negative reflection on Andrew Scott. Like, I think he plays that role very well. Yeah. But, like, yeah, he does, in my mind, look like Andrew Scott, not like mm. Gethin Roberts. Varkas is largely a theatre director, where he's won a Tony for his work on God of Carnage and Matilda, and he's currently attached to a film adaptation of Matilda, which was, of course, itself based on the film Matilda, which is based <laughs> on the book Matilda, proving that Hollywood is truly the Ouroboros. <laughs> I feel like the fact that he is, like, a musical director really comes through in the movie. Like, when me and Jason were watching this, we were saying throughout the film, like, this movie is one step away from being a musical. There are, like, musical numbers functionally within the film where everyone gets up and sings together. Like, it's almost a musical. I definitely, I was watching it and I was remembering when I was in undergrad and I was in the library writing an essay and I didn't want to be there, so I was procrastinating. And so he got up and started to sing, and no. all the procrastinating students joined that in with him. That is not what happened. I went, I went down into like some dusty corner of the library, and I found this old book of like Union folk music. Oh yeah. And so instead of writing my essay, I just spent this weird afternoon reading Union folk songs in the back of the library somewhere and getting emotional about mm, solidarity. Mm, I've got some. And I was watching the movie, and I was like, yeah, this was the vibe. I wanted more of those songs in there. I really enjoy the opening where it just starts off with like the black screen and like Solidarity Forever playing. I think that's a really good open to a movie. Yeah. Maybe I was just very tired. I'd spent all week moving house, but that fully started and I was like, I'm teary now. <laughs> I feel like that was my reaction. Both times I've seen this movie, yeah. that's been my reaction. I was like, solidarity, you say? I weep. My <laughs> socialist heart bleeds for you. Yeah, I definitely got to the end of the movie and was crying. Yeah. Especially like the bit where all the miners turn up to pride, I think is also a very emotional moment. Yeah, 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 that just, that had me in tears. When, I think it's Gwen gets yeah. out of the bus and she's just like, where are my lesbians? <laughs> I just thought that was delightful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to give a little bit of like context about the film and its release. And then we can kind of talk about the historical accuracy of the film and sort of how it came about and how it was created, particularly with relation to Stephen Beresford, who was kind of the driving force behind this film getting made. And then we'll talk a bit about the politics of the film and, you know, how that interacts with the historical realities Mm. and some of the stuff that Irene mentioned last week. The film was released in 2014. It did okay at the box office. It grossed like $17 million, which is pretty good for a like niche historical comedy, but it didn't have the kind of mainstream success that I think some people thought it was going to have. 
Uh, mm. And we'll talk a bit about a couple of the reasons for that later on. But, like, for example, there's a Guardian article that I drew on quite a bit for this episode that we'll talk a bit about later. That it was written at the time of yeah. the film's release and kind of says, you know, this film is going to be a hit. Like, this is such a great, like, family film, which I think it is. Like, mm, it is a yeah. really good family film. And talks about it kind of being similar to, like, Billy Elliot. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty constant comparison. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw that comparison like 58 times, yeah. I feel like that would be a good double feature. Yeah. Miners Strike-themed musical double feature. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. sounds good. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, obviously it didn't resonate with global audiences in quite that way. Mm. Um, like, Billy Elliot was obviously very successful. Yeah. The critical reception was mostly positive, like, the performances, the humour, and the visuals were all praised. Given that the only negative review from mainstream press, which I found... <laughs> uh, I have seen this review, I know too. what it's gonna say. <laughs> ...claimed the film consisted of two hours atop a political correctness unicycle. <laughs> I think we can safely say that mainstream media, without brain worms, were generally positive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. That person was also like incredibly anti-unionist. It was like yeah. deeply terrible. Yeah, I read some quotes from that review where he was just like, oh, why have we reframed these like Luddites as like yeah. folk heroes? Yeah, and he did yeah. this whole bit where he was like, but the coal mining industry is evil, emphysema, air pollution, etc. And I was like, you realize that Thatcher was not closing down coal. Thatcher was changing to imported coal. And you know who gets lung disease from coal mining? The Miners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the film won the Queer Palm at the Cannes Film Festival in 2014, was nominated for a Golden Globe, among other like awards, nominations, and victories. So like it had a pretty good reception. It made a little bit of money. The film did okay. Mm. But there's not a lot to say about that aspect of it. It yeah. was a film that got made, as many films are, that didn't leave a lasting impact, really, despite the fact that, obviously the story has quite a degree of historical importance. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's almost more important as a kind of pointer towards historical documentation than it is as a piece of media. Yeah. Um, like, yeah. it's a good movie. It's really fun. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Yeah. But I don't have a huge amount to say about it in that respect. Yeah, I think it's a pretty, like, uncontroversially, like, good, feel-good movie. Like you said, it's a good family movie. Like As a queer family movie, it certainly is less complicated than watching Priscilla. <laughs> that's true yeah if i knew like a queer 12 year old i would absolutely be like let's watch this movie together and i wouldn't feel the need to be like so this is what they said but like we also need to consider these things i'd be like yep here's some gays stand with your unions thank you <laughs> parenting with alice <laughs> yep so now i want to talk about historical accuracy in the movie so the movie is a fictionalized account of events there is one arc in the film that of joe bromley cooper who is entirely fictitious he's specifically there as kind of an audience surrogate they're really on the nose about that like yeah. he's the cameraman for lgsm <laughs> i like, didn't i didn't think he was a good element of the film honestly <laughs> i thought that everyone else seemed much more nuanced and much more interesting mm. and Bromley it was just kind of like and then we shoehorned in this teen rejected by his family coming of age gay story because we felt like that's what a gay story should look like and we thought you would understand that yeah it felt very kind of tacked on and I didn't love it especially that scene where he like leaves his family and he's at the christening it's his sister's child christening or whatever yeah yeah and he comes home and he like packs his stuff and he's like i'm leaving and he turns to his sister and he was like i've always wanted to tell you that perm never suited you it was a bad look i don't know it just had a very like snappy gay one line of vibe about it that didn't match the rest of the film mm. i didn't feel like mm. i think his character as well and i'm afraid i can't remember who said this but somebody like kind of writing about the movie involved in the movie that i read specifically referred to his character as an in for straight audiences like yeah. when we first see him at pride he's really out of place at pride he's not comfortable he's kind of discovering this whole thing and as a straight person who's never interacted with the queer community you're on the journey with him yeah but if you're a queer person like you see that queer group and you already connect with them so you're like what's this guy doing here yeah, and it definitely sat weirdly to me that everyone else in that movie was like, this is the name that I know. I read in my research, I have read quotations from this mm. person. And then Joe Cooper was here. <laughs> Hi, Joe from Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. A nice middle-class family, Joe. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it obviously immediately gave me flashbacks to Roland Emmerich's Stonewall movie. Absolutely. Which mm-hmm. uh, is a movie we've discussed on this podcast before and basically slammed from beginning to end. Yeah. There are a few structural differences with this movie that mean that this character doesn't ruin it in the same way. Yeah. Largely, and I feel most importantly, that Joe Cooper is not presented as like the person who started... <laughs> Like, an instigated LGSM Mm. in the way that, I can't remember what the character's name is in the Stonewall movie, but he's kind of presented instigating the Stonewall riots. Yeah, yeah. I think the fact that Joe is mostly, like, an observer, he's quite, like, learning from the group. Like, he's not leading the group at any point. Like, we do see him take on roles where he's, like, you know, selling the t-shirts or whatever, but at no point is he the driving force, and I think that means that this fake guy doesn't detract from the true story that they're trying to tell. Yeah, um, I think you accurately picked him as being just incredibly gormless. <laughs> yeah. I did say that word about 50 times. Every time he had a line, I was like, so gormless. No I dorm. Did, I did genuinely kind of like the fact that he never went through any kind of like visual transformation with mm. his, when he developed confidence and things mm. like that. Like That's He just true. continued to look like he did and dress like he did. And he was just like, no, now I'm, now I'm confident being gay. And I didn't used to be. Yeah, like, yeah, I that's quite true. liked that element of it. There was no like gay makeover. Mm. Yeah, mm. I do think like I think his story, with the exception of yeah, some of that dialogue in that final scene that you've already mentioned. Yeah, I think overall his story was like good. It just maybe didn't belong in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a fully fictionalized movie about some gay kid in the eighties from Bromley would have been fine. Yeah, mm. yeah, just a different movie. I think another thing worth mentioning about his story with the Stonewall comparison is obviously in the Stonewall movie, like Stonewall was like a very racially diverse yeah. like group of people were involved in that and they put in this cis white man to help the audience connect. And I think another reason that I don't hate Joe <laughs> is that Joe is not from a fundamentally different background to the people that he is with and the people that he's yeah. kind of become a representative of for the audience. So it's not a raising those aspects of a group. Yeah, it's that, like, in the Stonewall movie, it's like you've put this, you know, white twink in the place yeah. of a bunch of much less socially acceptable queer people. Yeah. Where Joe just isn't that. Joe's just here. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, the fact that, as I'm about to discuss, like, so much of this movie is taken from real life, and I think, in part, it's easier because it's a much smaller scale group of people mm. involved compared mm-hmm. to Stonewall. There's a very specific story to tell that hasn't been so much told and retold and disputed in conflicting mm. accounts compared with Stonewall. Yeah. And as Alice points out, yeah, it's a lot less diverse. And so there's a lot less of that kind of tension when mm. you're then retelling the story and adding a fictional character. Yeah. Yeah. In an article for The Guardian where she interviewed several of the surviving members of LGSM and the Dulice mining community, Kate Kellaway includes a link to an incredible documentary that LGSM made for the mining community at the time called All Out Dancing in Dulice. This was Berriford's initial, like, in to contacting those involved in the group and, like, actually making this movie and writing the script. While the very amateurish documentary did not include the names of those interviewed, it did have an uncommon name. Reggie Blennerhassett. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> in the credits. And Beresford found him on Facebook. That's incredible. And was therefore able to contact Reggie and through him the entire group. And without Reggie having a ridiculous name, you might not have this movie. I highly recommend that anyone who wants to learn more about this movement reads this article. I'll link it in the episode description and also watches the little video. It's like a 20 minute long documentary. It's great. And you can really see in the documentary the fashion, the characters, Mm. the mannerisms, even some of the literal dialogue that would make it into the final film. Yeah, Beresford clearly watched this and was like, cool, I'm just making that. Yeah. (laughs) I was really impressed when I watched that documentary, which I did after finishing watching Pride yesterday, so at, like, midnight. Um, (laughs) How, like, recognisable the people are. Like, you would see a person, especially Mike Jackson, very notably, you see someone in that documentary and you straight away recognise them from the film, like, just from how they look and how they speak and how they dress and everything. And I thought that was cool. I also loved that the 
outfit that Mark wears at the Pits and Perverts concert, which you see him wear yeah. in the movie, is the real outfit he wore. And it's an incredible outfit. It was such a good outfit. <laughs> he came out on stage and I was like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Even things that seem dramatized in the film, like the kind of haphazard formation of the group during Pride, you see in this documentary, people are like, yeah, so we just kind of were like at Pride and we just like did the thing. And yeah, just incredibly minute details, like the one lesbian with cornrows. <laughs> oh yeah, she looks exactly the same. <laughs> and like, you know, in that documentary, they're singing Every Woman is a Lesbian at Heart. Yeah. <laughs> I just found it delightful. I was very sad that Mark Ashton's scroll with the group constitution did not make it into the movie. Yeah, that was a bit disappointing. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that was something, because obviously it's not mentioned in that documentary, whether it was something that they just didn't know about or like yeah. hadn't recounted mm. to Beresford and so therefore he didn't know about it, So then, but then it was in the book that was published yeah. afterwards. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I love Mark. He was an incredible character. Hmm. We'll talk a little bit more about Mark later on, but I want to talk a little bit about Jonathan because... Jonathan's relationship, like helping him live through his HIV diagnosis, is like another thing that's taken from real life. Although there were some changes, as Callaway writes. She writes, It was meeting a new partner, Nigel, which changed his outlook, and through him, he joined LGSM. They're still together, and recently had Dominic West, who's the actor who portrays Jonathan in the film, and director Matthew Farkas to tea. Jonathan baked a lemon drizzle cake. I just Amazing. thought that was a delightful <laughs> anecdote. That's a very important fact. I like the fact that we do actually see Jonathan in the movie. Like, in that scene where somebody from Wales rings up and Gethin picks up the phone, Jonathan is the one in the kitchen, like, cooking their Christmas dinner. Mm. And in yeah. real life, he's also the one who bakes the cake when they have yeah. people over. Yeah. Yeah. I like that they included that aspect of him. Jonathan and Nigel had recently been told by Stephen Beresford that in the film, Jonathan would have a different partner to real life, Welsh Gethin, Andrew Scott. Nigel took it well, the real Gethin still cheeses Jonathan about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that they're That's like, these good. two men still know each other in real life, but now there's a movie where they're going out. Like, can you imagine if there was a movie where, like, two of us were dating? <laughs> <laughs> imagine if someone made a movie about Queer as Fact in the future and they were like, we need a romance plotline. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I think overall, like, in terms of the people and the aesthetics mm. and the way that they talk and the relationships and that kind of thing, I do feel like the movie does, like, a really good job mm. in terms of being true to how these people portrayed themselves and how they seemingly were based on the footage yeah. that we have of them and yeah. the evidence that we have. So yeah, one of the things that gets less focus in the movie and is spoken about quite a bit in the documentary, which is how LGSM not only brought a focus on gays to the minors, but a focus on socialism and union politics to the gay community. As Roy James, member of LGSM and friend of the late Mark Ashton's, points out, there were strategic considerations to this alliance. People were sick and dying, and nothing was being done about it. In the film, we're depicted as good, fluffy people supporting the miners, but there was a clear strategy on Mark's part to align himself with the labour movement in order to get gay politics, sexual liberation, HIV and AIDS treatment onto the political agenda. I thought it was interesting, and there's this one point in the movie, and it's that Maureen talking about the gays and their political agenda and how they're really just here to get, you know get the gay agenda into the mining villages, etc., and they don't care about the miners at all. Mm. And everyone kind of dismisses that entirely as some tabloid nonsense, and Havina is like, you shut your mouth or I'll shut it for you, or whatever. Mm. Mm -mm. And yeah, that was a weird thing to hear, to have the like deliberate strategic like making of connections for that exact purpose, be kind of like raised and then thrown out as some homophobic nonsense. I think there was a point that you made in our episode last week, Irene, which I felt was quite different to what comes across in the movie. And you said at the end of the episode that you didn't want us to think of it as the gays went into this conservative mining village and really opened these miners' eyes and like gave them a new outlook on the world and the gays didn't come away with anything. It was really a two-way thing. And like what Jason's saying now is it's not just about the people in the mining village getting a connection with the queer community and understanding queer struggles, but it's also about the queer community getting a stronger connection with the labor movement and being able to work together and organize in that way. And it really doesn't come across in the movie that the queer people take anything except friendship away from yeah. the miners. Obviously it's really good at the end of the film where you see like the labor movement does come to the pride march and support them in that way. But I don't feel like it's really shown that the queer community learnt anything from the labour movement and kind of took away anything about organisation and activism and politics. 
Yeah, and I thought it was interesting particularly in that scene where Di Donovan comes in and meets them at the coffee shop Mm. and they're talking, is that the way that they speak about that in the book Pride, Di is very much like, I was stunned the second I met them that we were on such a political wavelength. Mm. And what they talk about in the coffee shop is like, you know, socialist strategy. Like it's like activism and that's just not there Mm. yeah i think that's really important like this is clearly a very deliberate choice Mm. on the behalf of the filmmakers to make the film more about found family and that connection and you know Mm. people embracing another community and having those kind of emotional arcs Mm. like like you know to some extent they're just kind of it's just the consideration of telling a story that's important but i do think yeah, like, as you're saying, this thing of Mark and Di connecting on a political wavelength yeah. is really important and could have been the basis for the movie, right? Like, you could take out all the stuff with Joe mm. and instead show Di and Mark, both people who are activists within their communities mm. and struggling to, like, you know, garner support within their communities. Yeah. And have that be really, like, explicitly paralleled and then them coming together and supporting each other and how that like helps both of their communities thrive yeah yeah i'm literally already getting emotional about this hypothetical socialist romance <laughs> you just invented <laughs> that would have been a very good choice of i think personal relationship to focus mm. on because mm. mm. i did have to think about this because i was like yeah okay but it's one thing to say well it would have been good if they portrayed the broader reality of the gays were actually pretty politically savvy and knew kind of what they were doing mm. yeah but also i'm like okay but would that have actually been like a good movie i don't know that that would have been like you know as emotionally resonant for people but then I, I was like no no no, there are ways to do that yeah. yeah yeah and i think there are and there's this one scene in the movie and it's when cliff is taking them up to see the castle mm. and mark and die like stop together on this bridge and die is telling him about the banner they have with, like, the socialist hand clasping. And he's like, this is an important symbol. It shows, like, it means solidarity. I'll show you the banner sometime. And they, like, clasp hands. And then someone calls Mark and Mark goes away. Mm. And it's just this, like, 30-second scene. And I'm like, yeah, it was an interesting thing to include there for 30 seconds and never follow up because I feel like that's, like, a snippet of the imaginary movie that you've just outlined (laughs) to us. (laughs) Something I think they did was that basically Die has this knowledge of the history of the movement and this understanding of like socialist politics yeah that mark doesn't seem to have as much like he's clearly he's got the like fiery bombast that the real mark mm, Ashton yeah. clearly has if you watch that little documentary or any yeah. Other, yeah. like footage of him but mark ashton was clearly like very aware of like socialist politics and mm. the history of that and so yeah like if there'd been moments where mark had shown his knowledge yeah yeah because the real mark ashton was in the communist party wasn't he yeah yeah Yeah. and like the majority of those people were in some socialist group of some kind outside of lgsm like it was kind of just a haphazard group that fell together through that pride collection but it wasn't a haphazard group of like random people who were like oh we should do something about this mining strike Mm. it was a haphazard group of activists from various places yeah yeah and they talk about that in the documentary yeah exactly yeah like some of them are like even saying that they had been supporting i think not even just like the mining movement but specifically welsh miners yeah Yeah. through the context of being in like young socialist groups Mm -hmm. yeah yeah something that i found in the movie which i think comes out of this so you've mentioned that they came from a diverse range of political backgrounds Mm -hmm. like obviously all leftist ones but political backgrounds and came together in this group and something that you talked about irony in our episode last week and you also say in that documentary is that the women felt that the political fighting between the men from those different backgrounds was quite detrimental to the group and that was why they formed lesbians against pit closures and that doesn't come across in the film but the fact that the lesbians do want to go away and kind of form their own group is included and i felt like that did kind of demean the story of those women a bit and it was a little bit mocked where they were like we want a safe space to be women and talk about women's issues and the men was like what's wrong with this space and they didn't show that the women were actually getting very frustrated with this kind of political infighting and they didn't show things that you talked about Irene like those women's groups they did have with the mining women where they got together and did like crafts and talked about women's issues so I think that it did because they've taken out 
some of the politics, it therefore did really detract from the women's story. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, they've taken out the politics and they've taken out the women's story, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So it ends up with this little, like, addendum where the women are like, we're separating, we're making lesbians against pit closures. And from an audience perspective, you're like, what? Why? It's just a kind of stereotype about lesbian separatists. Yeah. It's also like, you know, and they kind of pull it together at the end of the movie by having um, the two groups march alongside Mm. each other. But, like it actively works against the point of the movie. Yeah. Right? Like, like the more simplistic point of the movie is like having these two groups coming together and it kind of just gets modeled a little bit in the middle where they're like, Hey, we're, ha- we're forming a separatist group. And yeah. then we're never going to talk about that again. Yeah. yeah. Like I understand if the movie didn't have time to deal with this issue, like not every movie is a feminist movie. That's okay. But I think the better choice would be to remove lesbians against pit closures altogether and just show lesbians working with LJSM rather than to kind of include it but not give it enough depth to explain why it existed. Or like include them but have it be, hey, there is another group that's working alongside us. Yeah. Not yeah. be like, yeah. we're forming our own group for reasons that we're not going to define properly. <laughs> yeah. 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 And even like a lot of the responses when the breakaway group formed in mm. real life like some of the people were like i don't understand why they did it it was just you know splitism it was pointless divisiveness yeah but a lot of the men's responses were like i completely understand there were very few women it was paul canning who was one of the members of lgsm and he was like i completely understand lgsm was never a very diverse group there were few women there were few black people mm-hmm. i can't fault them for wanting to have their own space yeah and i think yeah even if that had come through that like it had made sense Mm. to the members of ljsm that this secondary group was forming yeah but instead of that yeah it was just kind of treated as this like little joke about lesbians Mm. Mm. and also because our main like lesbian character is steph and we see steph not want to join lesbians against pit closures. And then that point where she's like at the bar with Joe and she's like, hide me because they're trying to make me join lesbians against pit closures. Yeah. So like, it really is like made into a joke. Yeah. And like, that was absolutely a tension that existed that some yeah. women left for lesbians against pit closures and some decided to stay because they thought that like the togetherness was more important yeah. to them. But yeah, I don't think it comes off well the way that they've kind of portrayed it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to sort of go back a couple of steps in terms of the political angle and what LGSM were kind of trying to achieve, as well as just you know, solidarity with the miners. So Jonathan Blake talks about how the South Wales miners pressured the NUM to put gay rights on the Labour Party agenda in 1985, mm-hmm. which yeah. Alice mentioned earlier and Irene mentioned last week, which obviously helped pave the way for civil partnerships being recognised in the UK. As Blake puts it, the NUM didn't want anything to do with poofs, but Die put pressure on them. He was good as his word. Hmm. And I guess to the credit of the film, like, Irene, you said before that Mark and Di have that one conversation about the clasped hands and solidarity Mm. on the banner, and they never bring it up again. There is that moment at their Pits and Perverts concert where Di does stand up and tell that story again, and he does say, like, you wore our badge and now we will wear yours. Yeah. So, like, the movie does include these things, but, yeah, I think it just doesn't give that angle as much space as it could have. Yeah. And I also think the movie includes these things, but the sort of radical socialism is taken out of it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's been toned down into two disparate, socially acceptable political movements, kind of. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when you actually talk about these people, they're, you know, they're all out communists. Yeah. When you actually look at some of the things they say and like the history that they're referring back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The film is clearly somewhat uncomfortable with the like communist and socialist roots of the LGSM. And in particular, I think Mark Ashton. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he doesn't really come across as a full time activist in the movie, I would say. Like, especially the way he kind of, like, walks away from the group. Yeah. And is clearly just, like, not doing any kind of activism for a while. And then there's that bit where Joe goes to Delice and he's mm. there, but then he, like, walks away. And yeah. yeah, it's a little bit muddled. And I think somewhat this is because of the fact that Mark is dead. And as Bereford puts it when he talks about the difficulties of capturing his character, and he does refer to him as mm. the one who was hardest yeah. to portray in the film... In Wales, they still talk about Mark Ashton as if he were Joan of Arc. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I thought was a really illustrative quote. Yeah. And I think 
speaks to some of the difficulties with trying to sort of talk about someone who is dead and who means a lot to these two different communities and you know i think if they had made him be more explicitly communist people might have been a bit upset about that see my thought is more that probably those people he means a lot to because they were also part of those movements themselves Mm. would have been okay with that depiction and i assumed that it was more done just to give it a broader public appeal I absolutely agree with you. I think from the perspective of the filmmakers, that's how they felt. Mark in the movie is a fairly uncontroversial figure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and I do think that there was an extent to which Beresford didn't want to complicate that legacy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in doing so, he's kind of shaved off some of what he would probably term as like rough edges. Yeah. But like, which obviously, you know, from our perspective and probably from the perspective of the people in his community is just kind of a fact of nature about him yeah yeah. it's as important as the fact that he was gay yeah yeah yeah. and i can see how this would have happened like when we talked about how they removed the fact that many of these people were from different political backgrounds and had like this kind of infighting going on i can absolutely see why you don't want that in a movie like Mm. a feel-good fun movie that happens to be about activism is not a movie where you want to watch a bunch of men stand around and debate whether they're Trotskyists or Leninists. Like, that's not good content. (laughs) (laughs) You're correct. That's absolutely not good content. I understand why they did not make this a movie about radical socialists, because Mm. that is not very broadly palatable in our current post-Thatcher society. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do think it's possible to make a movie about radical socialists without devolving into <laughs> leftist infighting immediately, you know? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, there are ways to make that movie, and that suggestion Jason gave of really focusing on the relationship yeah. between, Mike and, between Mark and Di is a way to make this more of a movie about uh, mm. leftist politics. Obviously, it seems really silly to say I want this to be more of a movie about leftist politics when it's a movie about unions, and that's all the movie's about. <laughs> I feel like, and I was thinking this as I was watching it, it gives you very little information Mm. about what's going on. Like, Mm. you're led to understand that there is a mining strike. It's not super clear about who the union is or what their actions are. Like, you find out that the miners are striking because of the pit closures, but that's the most political context you're given. Yeah, you see Thatcher, like, twice ever. The only time that the union is involved is that kind of spurious union meeting that Maureen throws while the rest of the miners are out of town Mm. or like the rest of the pro gay miners yeah yeah i do just feel like a lot of that context was missing like i was kind of watching it like would i understand this (laughs) if i if i hadn't researched it already yeah so i i think it does limit the depth of the story and i think it makes the connection between the two groups seem less plausible than it actually was Mm. yeah you know like uh, um as mike jackson puts it i hate margaret thatcher as much as ever yeah you know like that was a key part of the connection between the two of them, and you've spoken about this in terms mm. of um, Di's first meeting with LBSM. Yeah, yeah it, it really does feel like... And, and I, again, this is kind of them just making a movie and making it dramatic. Yeah. The thing with these two groups who seemingly have nothing in common except they're both oppressed, and it's like, okay, but like dig deep into like the specific nature of how they're oppressed. And they do that a tiny little bit. Mm. Yeah. Um, but they could definitely have done with a lot more of mm. that connection. And yeah. yeah, I think, you know, as we've kind of discussed, I, the, this is not the first time we've basically come up with an alternate script for a movie <laughs> in the middle of an episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like in this case, you just arrived and you were like, I have a socialist bromance that would be better than this film. And I were like, that's true. <laughs> to be clear, like, this was a very good film. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think it's just the nature of discussing a film that you will discuss more of the things that you found wrong with it. And yeah. the things that you found right with it because it's very easy to be like well i loved this and i connected with it yeah and then yeah. you move on to the details of what didn't work for you mm-hmm. yeah well i mean and as we've said like this is clearly like a deliberate goal on the part of the filmmakers mm. the movie is constantly compared as i've said earlier to billy elliot it comes incredibly close to being a straight-up musical at different stages <laughs> as Alison and i mentioned earlier and you know uh there was an interview that i watched with andrew scott where he says it is about union politics and gay history, but that he kind of saw the movie as really trying to get this story across to a mainstream audience. Mm, yeah. To make it part of, like, broader British history, to really, like, he yeah. was really emphasising the idea that this is a historically important moment that people didn't know about. Yeah. yeah. And that the goal of the movie was for people to know about it. Hence making what is, for the most part, a fun family comedy. Scott seemed particularly delighted to be playing a gay character who wasn't, like, super sexualized or in adult content mm, yeah. which i think is really important right yeah. because 
that that is something that we don't get a lot of is kind of family kids movies where there's not just one gay character there's like a whole cast of gay characters Mm -hmm. and they're just kind of living normal people lives and doing normal people things yeah like the only scene i would really be worried about kids seeing is the one where the mining women find like a dildo under one of the guy's beds so speaking of that (laughs) have a good laugh about some gay porn (laughs) yeah yeah so speaking of that uh unfortunately for this movie its lack of adult content was not enough to save it from the homophobia of the rating system i'm I'm unsurprised so the british board of film classification gave the film a 15 rating stopping anyone from under 15 from seeing it and the u.s mpaa gave it an r rating stopping those from under stopping those under 17 from seeing it but it's such a good movie for like early teens for example yeah exactly and i just want to say because there's some like media coverage about this gets this a bit confused the u.s isn't being more homophobic than britain in that context the u.s rating system is just harsher than the yeah british one like a 15 in britain is pretty comparable generally to a 17 okay in the u.s there was some coverage that kind of confused that but that is a normal thing it's not just specific to this movie okay uh yeah this rating is literally based entirely on the one scene that alice just mentioned where the welsh mining ladies find a gay porn magazine in their room and are giggling about it and like that's ridiculous like i read the pg rating summary for the uk which permits mild sexual references which i would say is definitely common but okay let's say it's more than mild the 12 slash 12a ratings allow for some nudity and sexual activity to be portrayed if you want to get really finicky about it which it's not even sexual activity it's just people like viewing naked people yeah and like when we say a porn magazine like it's just a picture of a naked guy it's not like a picture of anybody having sex they're literally just looking at a picture of a naked guy you see it for a short enough time that i would have had to pause to find out whether or not he was naked yeah like i can confirm he's shirtless i couldn't even confirm whether you can see him was Was he in jocks i don't know yeah he was not i I, i'm not a hundred percent sure if you can see his dick but yeah yeah like even if you can it's for like half a second yeah Yeah. this should not be a controversial statement to say that that should not justify yeah you have to get parental supervision as a 15 or 17 year old to see this movie absolutely yeah especially considering the like mild sexual content or whatever whatever it is that's available in like het movies Mm. yeah exactly yeah Yeah, i think there's a connection to be drawn there between choosing to water down the politics of the story a little bit to try and make it this kind of mainstream success and the way that that ignores how the mainstream was never going to like fully embrace such Mm. a fundamentally radical story yeah yeah um you know in the same way that the real life history of these events ended in a loss for the miners but a win for solidarity i think this film was in the end somewhat of a mixed success Mm -hmm. um you know i think honestly i know a lot of queer people who've seen it and really love it i know shout outs to our friend gabby (laughs) who's been trying to get us to watch this movie for i think literally seven years probably yeah yeah. because that's when it came out (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah, I think in the end there was maybe a little bit of wrongheadedness mm. about the creation of this film in terms of how they were thinking about trying to, and I think it's absolutely a noble goal, to try and make, you know, this gay story part of the kind of, you know, British canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that they would have been better placed trying to tell a more authentic story mm. yeah. and letting that resonate with audiences. Yeah, I think... I definitely don't think we want to come across like, or I don't want to come across like, I think that there's something wrong with kind of, as an activist, starting people on a palatable version. Mm. Mm. Like, if as an activist, every time you walk into a conversation, you walk in with the most radical viewpoint that you hold. Yeah. You will, you know, you will not win. Yeah. And so I think it does make sense in that context to start people with something that you think they will swallow. Mm. But I do think, yeah, it's an interesting choice if their goal there was to make it sort of mainstream acceptable. Yeah, why does that gay porn scene stay in? Does it add anything to that section of the movie where the miners are in London that, like, seeing them go clubbing and go to a leather club and stuff does not? I mean, I do think it's a funny scene, and I think it would be a funny scene whether you are queer or not. Like... I can see why they had that scene. And if you were making that movie, not thinking about the fact that that would get you the rating, Mm. I see why you'd just be like, yep, include that scene. And I see why you wouldn't expect it to get you the rating because that's not how the rating system's meant to work. Like that was homophobic. So like, I see why that scene is there, even though it's unfortunate that it had the effect that it had. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's what I'm kind of getting at, right? Yeah. Is that I think the people who are making this film were, to some extent, thinking about society not as, like, fundamentally homophobic. Yeah. 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 Which... Like good, I'm glad you know. <laughs> I'm glad that they can that people can do that in the making of mm-hmm. a film. Like, yeah, just in terms of thinking about social changes from the period the film was set in mm. until now, the idea that people can go into that not conceptualizing homophobia as entrenched in the film industry, mm. yeah, is just wild. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and like that's not to say that like Stephen Beresford, people like Stephen Beresford oh, yeah. and Andrew Scott are like unaware of homophobia. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure they are, but I think that the fact that they have felt comfortable portraying some of those things even if it did backfire on them a little bit kind of says positive things about where we're at i guess yeah as yeah a society yeah. yeah i would be and i don't think i have ever said this on queer as fact before but i would be interested to have a straight guest host and hear <laughs> what they thought of this film it's a random straight person off the street who's watched pride <laughs> <laughs> the anticipation i was feeling when you were like i've never said this on queer as fact before i was like is this going to be a thing you've never said on Queer Respect before or is that a joke and it's something that you say on Queer Respect <laughs> literally every time no I want like somebody who's not like very left wing not really connected with the queer community just a random straight person and I want to know how they react to this movie oh. I would be interested if you are listening to this and you're that person great to have you here you're not our expected audience and please tell us what you think of Pride <laughs> To go like a couple of steps backwards, back into kind of how they portrayed the politics, Mm. I did think it was interesting that they made the antagonist of the film homophobia within the mining community Mm. rather Mm -hmm. than the obvious antagonist, Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was something I actually forgot to mention earlier. I just, I thought about it when we were watching the movie, but Mm. didn't... uh... Um, think about it when writing my script um it was something i mentioned to alice yeah. where i was like oh no i'm really uncomfortable with this yeah, like, yeah. immediately as soon even before they were sort of actively mm. doing anything but i was just like correct me if i'm wrong but that's not like based in any kind of reality not from anything that i saw and i would fully believe that after the fact people have downplayed the tension that was there and like Mm. you saw definitely in the like things that sean james said where she was like i don't think that people were nasty but they certainly made some jokes and from our point of view we're like those are homophobic jokes sean yeah so i definitely think that there was a level of tension in those communities that gets very downplayed in the oral histories yeah, but I think we got that in the film, like, separate from this specific, like, villain storyline. Mm. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, we got the tension in the meetings, um, which, you know, yeah. like, they, uh, I think you said in the episode last week, like, you know, that it's not in the minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it was it was Havina, maybe, or Sean saying that the minutes were sanitised. Yeah. They asked about the meeting, and she was like, I remember that the minutes were sanitised. Yeah. <laughs> And, like, you know, there were several scenes of, like, the Welsh mining town getting used to the presence of gay people in their community. And I I think it is totally realistic to have some people who don't come round. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But I think having them, like, actively sabotage in such a, like, specific way when a lot of the other, like, big important plot beats in this film are specific events that actually happened. Yeah. Yeah. Is, like, a little dodgy. And, yeah, I think, as you say... Obviously, the villain in the story is the police and Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, Yeah, and especially when, like, the whole focus you want the story to be on, and they kind of set it up in the beginning with Mark Ashton making that little speech where he's like, well, the government hates them, the cops hate them, the tabloid press hate them, sound familiar, anyone? Mm. And it's weird to come into that, come in with that opening, and then not have the story about them uniting against this common antagonist, which is... And a, like a repressive mm. government. Yeah. We get moments of that. Like there's the moment where Jonathan explains to Sean like what her rights are if a cop pulls her over and like things like that. But it's not actually surprisingly as big a part of the movie as you, as you would think that they're all united by their hatred of Thatcher. Yeah. 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 I did find it weird that like you hear Thatcher's name like three times in the mm. movie. You see her face twice. Yeah. And yet, when you read any of the history, any quotations from these people, that's what they talk about. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing they have in common. That's, that's the, the thing we should see yeah. them talking about in the hall. And I, and I think fundamentally that comes back to 
the context into which they're making the movie, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that when I say that, you know, like LGSM was kind of a bittersweet mixed success kind of mm, yeah. moment in history, it's because we live in a world where Thatcher didn't lose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right? And and so, you know, there's been kind of historical whitewashing of her legacy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, like obviously we're all like Thatcher sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you to the uh person on was it Twitter who sent us the Thatcher content? I don't know. What was this? Oh, uh, someone sent us some great like oh. um look, uh new public toilet just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, my... style content about Good. Thatcher. Good. My <laughs> current favourite fact about Thatcher is that after she died, they had to put her like memorial on like a nine foot plinth to stop people pissing on her. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that just a challenge? I understand that that's what people. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, because because we live in that society, you know, if you're trying to do what this movie was trying to do, and what we've kind of been talking about, mm. like you know what they were trying to achieve versus what was like realistically possible to achieve, mm. then you kind of do have to downplay a little bit and sort of be like, yeah, Thatcher is bad, but like you know, here's what we really need to focus on is like the human impact on these people. Yeah, um, and not yeah. just focus on the fact that they are constantly criticizing Margaret Thatcher, which they absolutely were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which I guess, given that like the the whole current UK political and economic system is like the direct descendant yeah, of Margaret yeah. Thatcher, it's not a huge. It's a big movie, I guess, a big step to make it in terms of radicalizing your movie to make a very real historical movie about a very real thing that happened where the focus is on criticizing the oppressive British government. Yeah. 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 Um, That is a movie that is a very different, even though it's not that different content, it's a very different feeling because you'll be watching it much more and being like, Oh yep. This is today. Yeah. I think you'd be watching it seeing parallels the whole time and you yeah. wouldn't make that movie without kind of trying to make those parallels yeah it would yeah. be a deeply weird movie to make to be like here's dystopian neoliberal 1980s britain this doesn't look familiar at all mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah bouncing off you two saying that it really felt like it was this close to being a musical oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep um, yeah and this is something that i did think and if we have any welsh listeners please confirm um you know the scene where they start singing bread and roses oh, yeah. and everyone mm-hmm. joins in and it's just apparent that the entire village is like a four-part choir mm-hmm. immediately <laughs> please tell me if welsh villages are really like this well, the- oh so um i was saying to alice last night that we need i can't believe I didn't think to invite uh, my friend Sarah onto this podcast. Oh, yes. Yes, I knew that Sarah was Welsh. As someone who not only is Welsh, but her, her mother is from a very tiny Welsh town. And Sarah has spent like a month living in this tiny Welsh yeah. town one time when she was on holiday. And so like, you know, I feel it would have resonated very deeply <laughs> yeah. with this film. The thing that I was thinking about when they started that scene where they're singing in the hall was at first I was like, come on. And then I was thinking about what you said, Iron, in our previous episode about the strength of their religion and how that made them, like that was a cultural thing that influenced the strength of their community and the way they fought these battles. And I thought these people would all go to church together every week and they would all sing in church together every week. So of course they all know the same song and they have these harmonies and that's just a thing they do all the time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of what I wondered. That's why I was like, look, rural Welsh listeners, if you're out there, please confirm is your town like this? (laughs) If you you started singing in the town hall, would it work? (laughs) Um, Anyway. (laughs) The thing I was going to get to is I want to, and I haven't done it yet because I've been moving house, I want to put together a playlist for this episode because not only are there a bunch of union songs and like miners work songs that I think are, you know, relevant and you would want to listen to, but there's also a bunch of queer music from the time. Oh, cool. the, so, like, the band that they had at Pits and Perverts, Bronski Beat, mm-hmm. is a real band. Nice. Yeah, is a real band, was quite successful and was openly gay. Cool. Mm. But they have a couple of songs that are about, like, you know, a gay kid leaving his homophobic hometown and moving to London and things like mm. that. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's the same band, but there was definitely a band that has a song that's, like, about Mark Ashton. 
Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I cannot tell you where I read that. It was in one of the articles <laughs> I read. Um, <laughs> That's all right. We'll, tra- we'll track it down. I was complaining to Jason when we watched the movie. I was like, why don't unions like write songs anymore? Like right? all the union songs I've ever heard sung at protests is like Solidarity Forever, We Shall Overcome. Like they're ones that have been around forever. And then Jason was like, you're in a union, you're in a guitar. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think there's a lot where I'm like unions are just not as powerful as they used to be and then I'm like I realise that this is a me problem (laughs) I mean it's not a me problem it's an every worker problem it's an us problem it's It's an us us problem problem. (laughs) so like Uh, listeners should know that I just like clapped Irene on the shoulder in a very like socialist comradely gesture (laughs) Um, anyway join your union listeners so that's like maybe a little bit of a nicer note to wrap up on although Alice I think you had something that you wanted to mention. I just want to give a shout out to every single outfit that Steph wore throughout the movie. It, every single one was incredible. Just amazing. Yeah, she is like absolute goals. Yeah, like, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. We she had a. Genuinely contemplating shaving the sides of my hair to look more like Steph. <laughs> <laughs> incredible. I was actually, I was watching an interview with the actress who played her, mm-hmm. and she's like, you know, I had to like drink a few glasses of wine before letting them touch my hair. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a hairdo. Like, yeah. It's very extreme, but it's amazing. And in that yeah. interview, like, it's clearly like her hair has started to grow back, and she's just like clearly like, you know, not really into looking like a punk and like is just like a normal looking lady. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if I was an actress who had previously not looked like a punk and then I went to that movie and they did that to my hair, I'd be like, it's done now. I guess this is how I look. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Actually, and this is wildly off topic, but I've seen a couple of interviews with actresses who have done things like this. And one of them was one of the girls who played, um, who was in Rabbit Proof Fence. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw a behind the scenes thing with her. And she was a teenager when she was in it. She was like 14 or something. 15, maybe. And she had like waist length hair. And her character has this like, you know, sensible bob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there was this scene with her where they'd cut her hair and it's just like her staring in the mirror, like kind of looking at the ends of it. (laughs) And I think it's very, it's very interesting to me, the kind of the way that like femininity and hair are so closely connected and like character and hair, Mm, mm, especially mm. for women. Yeah, yeah. I think you see that in this movie. Like the the women's hairstyles say a lot about each of the women with those hairstyles. They really do. Like, the miners all have that kind of, like, curly, mullet-esque haircut. Like, the mining women, I mean. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the ones from London have, like, Steph's, like, punk, undercut, orange, mohawk-y thing. I don't know <laughs> yeah. what you call that. <laughs> the Steph's situation, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Steph situation. <laughs> How yeah. do you, like, go to a hairdresser and explain that that's what you want? Like, shave this bit, then straighten this bit. But I want this bit so it can go on top, but this bit will be crimped. Like, there's just so much happening. I think it's style. one of those ones where you take in, like, a cutout from a magazine of some, like, grungy punk band that you're into, and you're like, can you make me this because I'm gay? I, mean, I think it's one of those ones where you hand your gay friend some clippers yeah, and be like, true. I'm gay, <laughs> and people can't tell. <laughs> I'm gay and people can't tell. Oh. There was definitely, like, an absolutely distinct moment. Like, I swear, between one day and the next, where my hair grew long enough out of its buzz cut that men thought I was someone they should try and chat up on the tram. <laughs> it was literally like there was a length beyond which I got where men would start talking to me on the street again. And I was like, why is this? <laughs> why? <laughs> oh, oh dear. So on that note, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Jason. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And if you've enjoyed this episode, check out Queer as Fact on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. We can be found on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact, and if you'd like to contact us with episode suggestions, comments, or anything else, we can be reached via email at queerasfact at gmail.com. Finally, if you'd like to support this podcast financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase merch, as well as a Patreon, where you can get perks like access to our monthly newsletter and the ability to vote on some of our episode topics each season. Uh, All of this info, as well as source posts, if you'd like to learn more about the history we draw from in our episodes, can be found on our website, queerasfact.com. We'll be back on the 15th, when Eli will be telling us about the ancient Greek military unit, the Sacred Band of Thebes. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.